Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo. Welcome back academic types, both faculty and students. Hope you are enjoying your summer. Folks who don't live around here might not know just how close Niagara Falls is. I've been there regularly, but never rode the gorge in a high-speed jet boat until now. It's wet and wild, a must-do. I'm Peter Sabota. The Ebola outbreak last year in West Africa is not a news story to our guest. For her, the outbreak and its systemic impact are personal, as well as an issue for collective humanity. In this episode, our guest, Dr. Yabum Gilpin Jackson, describes the economic, health, educational, infrastructure, social justice, cultural, and social trauma impacts of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Dr. Gilpin Jackson articulates a counter-response to the post-traumatic stress disorder that's commonly used to describe collective trauma. She articulates what she is learning about post-traumatic growth as part of a narrative for many individuals and larger systems, specifically moments of resonance as people and their culture make meaning of their experiences. Dr. Yabum Gilpin Jackson, PhD, MA, MBA, CHRP, is a social scientist focused on human and organization systems development. She works, teaches, and conducts research in the areas of leadership, human systems, organizational change and development, transformative learning, and post-traumatic growth. In addition, she has published research into the growth and development needs of war-affected people in Africa. Dr. Gilbin Jackson was interviewed by our own Dr. Robert Keefe, Associate Professor here at the UB School of Social Work. They spoke together in May of 2015. Hello everyone. My name is Dr. Rob Keefe. I'm an Associate Professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Here with me today to talk about Ebola is Dr. Yabum Gilpin Jackson. Dr. Jackson, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Now, I think many of us in the United States have been trying to get our brains around the whole issue of Ebola. Ebola concerns us all, and we know of your particular interest in what is happening in the West African outbreak and around the world. Tell us about your interest and views on the Ebola outbreak. Part of my connection to what's happening in West Africa is that myself, I am of Sierra Leonean heritage. I was born in Europe, and uh, but I lived in Sierra Leone for 15 years, and I went to school there, and so Sierra Leone is, is deeply a part of my identity. And so with some of what you, you saw from an article I had written before, 
Ebola is much more than just another news story to me. However, beyond that, as you know, at this moment, we're looking at over 10,000 people affected, both in terms of people that have been infected by the Ebola viral disease and also in death toll. And so this is beyond a personal issue. It's also an issue of our collective humanity. It is an issue of collective interest. And being in, in Canada, in North America, while the outbreak got worse and worse and the news coverage of the outbreak continued, for me it was also watching some of the unfortunate side impacts of just the repeat of what I call the paria narrative of Africa and being here watching for those of us of African heritage you know, respond to that with things like, I am Sierra Leonean, not a virus. I am African and I'm not from any of the countries affected, which in itself was sad as people tried to both share a fuller narrative and educate people and distance themselves from some of what's happening with the coverage. Again, very needed coverage, but had its own impacts in terms of reinforcing a narrative that, that wasn't helping the situation. And so for me, that really led me to wanting to do more, see more, uh, speak and be in, be a voice in shifting that narrative and making sure that what was needed to be heard was being heard and that a fuller picture was being portrayed overall as much as I can be a contribution to that. Mm-hmm. I think so many of our listeners are very interested in the system's impact of Ebola And I know some of your work and research is in the area of human systems development. What systemic impacts can we anticipate from the Ebola outbreak? Well, I think we can absolutely expect impacts from a systems perspective at every level. I think if you're looking from the context of sort of social economic structures, um, looking at the structure of a functioning society, Ebola absolutely has affected every in that perspective. So the economic sector, I mean, there's just been impacts at every level from the primary sector to the secondary sector to the service economy. I mean, there's been, you know, it's affected in Leone, for example, the mining industry is huge and that has slowed down and ground to a halt in some cases. Organizations that were there and building uh, had to close operations. In the secondary sector, um, obviously, if the primary sector is getting shut down, that impacted everything else for where we do have manufacturing, etc. And just the service sector and the business sector and the financial sector. I have a friend in the tourism uh, sector whose business just, just uh, stopped and he had to look at different ways of continuing to do the work that he did. Beyond that, the obvious one is the health sector. We were already struggling in Sierra Leone with health infrastructure in the post-war environment that we were in, having had 10 years of civil war, a lot was moving forward, still there was a lot to do. And one of the places where there was still a lot to do was in restructuring our health systems. And so you can only imagine now, we've probably had seen with some of the coverage, just the huge impact on our healthcare workers nurses, doctors just lost so many to the Ebola outbreak as they cared for the sick. And so health sector has been impacted. And the system of health is the obvious piece. But there's also things like water and sanitation and all of that. So there's that piece. And then there's other areas, again, some that are more top of mind for people than others. For example, the education sector. The schools only reopened in Sierra Leone within the last month or month and a half or so. 
schools were closed for literally almost a year and that had students out of school. There's been impacts of that, especially we've been hearing a lot around teenage pregnancy and young women who were students in school now out of school because they became pregnant during the hiatus of schools being closed. There's infrastructure needs. I know that I spoke to some colleagues who were front and center in the response in Liberia where access, road access to some of the areas where the outbreak was the worst was a significant issue and that has come back to focus with the Ebola outbreak. And then overall around social justice and equality in the global system going outside, taking that system perspective outside of the local context, when you look at what the needs were comparatively, relatively, the needs in Liberia and Guinea, uh, who were the primary three countries affected by this outbreak, comparatively small in global scale. And so that just brought to focus some of the global inequalities that we sit with and the impact of that for the global system around wealth inequalities and what can be done to support those countries in relative poverty in a way that builds capacity and is not just about aid and handouts. Because what those economies need and what those countries need, I believe, is an ability to build their own capacity so that the response to something like Ebola can be locally led and doesn't have to be dependent on the global system and on aid coming in from elsewhere. So, you know, and just going back internally, just huge impacts on sociocultural systems, family systems, community systems, on cultural norms. We can expect impacts in all of those areas. You know that many people have spoken about the response moving forward and being better coordinated once people were willing to attend to community and cultural norms around things like burial rights. And so we can expect uh, those ongoing impacts, I think, from a psychosocial human systems lens. There's also impacts at every level. There's individual people that have had trauma, there's social trauma, and again, in Sierra Leone and Liberia especially, those countries are not foreign to the impacts of social trauma, unfortunately, because of the war experience that they had as well. The issues of trauma, I'm sure, are very pervasive. And you speak of those issues at an individual level, a community level, and uh, nationally and internationally. You also talk very interestingly about post-traumatic growth. Can you tell us about your work in this area? Yes. You know, post-traumatic growth is very near and dear to my heart and, as you know, a big part of the research that I have done. What led to that was that I was really troubled again, sort of having been in, in Sierra Leone in Freetown when the war came to a climax in Freetown in around 1997 to about 1999-2000. Of course, a war that had been going on for years in other parts of the country. And so I left Specifically, at the time that I left Freetown, I left because of the spread of the war into the capital there. And so moving out to Canada for university, etc., and just, again, listening to sort of the popular narrative, the pop narrative, and just the language out here around African wars and African civil wars and what was known about the impacts. Again, I'm always careful when I talk about this to say, you know, sort of popular narrative around the death, the disease, the post-traumatic stress and the trauma needs to be named and needs to be attended to. So that is important to say. At the same time, what I was acutely aware of 
was that there's a whole other side to that narrative that seems to be unnamed and not known and not talked about, which is the potential for post-traumatic growth and, and transformation and the stories of people who, yes, had that individual trauma and at the same time were doing incredible things and making incredible difference both in the context of trauma and outside of that and just having huge sort of social change impacts. And so I started looking into this and landed on this idea and concept of post-traumatic growth that researchers out at UNC Charlotte, so University of North Carolina in Charlotte, uh, have pioneered, and there's a post-traumatic growth research group out there. So I started looking into this and was I found that it resonated for me. So some of what those researchers, um, Tadeshi and Calhoun, sort of pioneered this research and have written a lot about it, part of what they were finding is that the phenomenon of post-traumatic growth which is the potential for significant and transformational growth as a result of the struggle with a traumatic um, event is more common than is known. And there's other research that shows that potentially 75 to 90% of survivors report benefits from a traumatic experience. Again, this is not to say that the post-traumatic growth experience is a result of trauma. In my own research with people I interviewed, every single one of them said, I wouldn't wish this trauma, this war trauma in my case was the research I did, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But as a result of the struggle with it, as a result of making meaning of it, I have come out on the other side and have been identified as someone who potentially is experiencing post-traumatic growth. And so specifically what it is then is the idea of positive change, again, transformational change experienced as a result of the struggle with a major life crisis or traumatic event. My research, again, was looking at post-war survivors, interviewing people identified in their communities as people that were change makers and just making a difference. And I also looked at autobiographies of people who had written about war experiences and did narrative analysis and inquiry of them. What I found was that post-traumatic growth needs to be understood in sort of a macro again systems perspective. In the case of the war traumas, specifically looking at African war survivors, it needed to be understood within the context of the people's capacity for holistic knowing that the people I interviewed and identified in, that for them, the way they understood the world and made meaning wasn't just about cognitive knowing, it was about holistic, it was knowing, it was about somatic knowing, it was about spiritual knowing, all those things. It also needs to be understood within the context of social norms, family systems, communities, and taboos. And again, if you relate that back to what we just said about Ebola, this was important in understanding what needed to be done to respond better to the Ebola outbreak and educate people and lead the response. It also was really important to understand post-traumatic growth within the context of not only how people understood knowledge and knowing, but also in terms of how they languaged that. So specifically for African war survivors in terms of narrative and storytelling, because this was core to 
how people made meaning in that context. And this was important because part of what moved me to do this research was looking at the research on post-war growth and post-war experiences and finding predominantly uh, the research on post-traumatic stress disorder. And with that, a lot of the African groups that were administered the post-traumatic stress disorder instruments too would, you know, would report upwards of 90% post-traumatic stress. And then outside of content, or context and the content of the experiences, it was hard to tell if that was the predominant experience. What I found, in fact, was that even though post-traumatic stress was there and people did not deny the trauma, there was equally these experiences of growth and transformation. And so in the context of speaking to them from a way that they could relate to and narrate their stories within, what I found was six themes associated with the post-traumatic growth process and how people came to realize their own post-traumatic growth. These themes really complemented the research that has already been done, you know, quantitatively with the post-traumatic growth indicator as well as qualitatively, but it allowed for an understanding of how people came to realize their transformational experiences. And so what they narrated to me was, yes, naming their trauma, but naming a narrative form of transformation. And then the six things that came out of that was that for all of the people I interviewed and in the autobiographies, what I found was the idea of resonance as a transformational learning moment. So there was a moment of moments where these interviewees and autobiographers deeply resonated to something interior for them that was related to their past, that was related to their pre-trauma context that provided for them a moment of awakening and opened them to a conscious engagement with their transformational experiences in a way that moved them forward. So it was altogether a moment that had them acknowledge the past, realize where they were in the present, and realized what they wanted to move forward into in their future. And it was really pivotal in uncovering the other five themes around post-traumatic growth, which is realizing their purpose in the you know, post-trauma, in this case post-war narrative, really opening them up to social consciousness as an outcome of what is possible for them in the post-war context, being aware of social context and of what they could do as social change agents. It provided for them also this deep determination and the will to make a difference. It also opened them up to spiritual and moral development, wrestling with questions of life, with philosophy, with how do I want to live my life and make a difference, and oftentimes a spiritual experience in that, religious or otherwise. And then just gave them a deep appreciation, which they talked about, for the value of life and the value of humanity and the value of our human connectedness. One of the participants in my study summed it up really beautifully in terms of defining sort of her narrative of transformation and her experience of resonance in the line that something in me had changed. I knew now that I could look forward and back without any regrets at the same time. And that just really expresses the ability to look at the past event and the trauma and yet be present with the impact of that on your life and at the same time being able to see forward very clearly in terms of purpose and everything else that unfolds out of it. 
And so, you know, that was some of what I found with the post-traumatic growth research. And it was a really emotional experience, but it was a different emotional experience than that we would typically think about with post-traumatic stress. So it wasn't that automatic shock, denial, you know, pain and struggle. Again, that was present, but it was also a moving to a deep emotional and effective connection that also moved people forward, that had the quality of nostalgia and and connected them sometimes to positive past events, but also to sad events. So for some people, it was the experience of seeing family die in the war. For others, it was connecting to, you know, before the war, I had so much passion. I had this dream and reconnecting to that in a positive way. So it was both ends of that spectrum, and it just really moved them into both cognitive and effective meaning-making of their war experiences. It sounds as though so many of them were able to somewhat transcend the horrible traumatic experiences that came their way, that happened to them, that, as you say, they were able to make much meaning out of it, of those experiences. And although they were horrible experiences, it seemed as though they transcended them in a way that made them able to give back much to their communities, give back much to the people in their lives. Absolutely. It was also an experience and some of the other research on post-traumatic growth has described that sort of as they get to a point of making meaning and realizing the potential benefits out of the experience and realizing the relative strength. So, you know, this happened to me, but it, it could be worse because I know other people who had a worse experience and having had a glimpse of that experience that other people must be struggling with, I am in a position to make a difference and to do something and to be a voice for the experience that I have had and for what's possible to support other people. It was very much an acknowledging of the trauma in a way that, as you put it, allowed them to hold the experience and yet transcend it all at the same time. So, yeah, it was that kind of explaining of it for them. So it's absolutely fascinating to listen to this, and I do wonder with so many of our listeners who are trying to be helpful and to reach out to other people who have sustained traumatic events in their lives, how can we apply what you're helping us to understand? How can this be applied to working with survivors, people affected by Ebola or perhaps affected by other major traumatic illnesses, traumatic events, and so forth? This is a really important question, and for me, it is the question of moving from research to action to practice and really making a difference with the research and work that we do. And so how it can be applied, so one of the things that I didn't say earlier is that it was very clear, and this is something I believe social work communities and, you know, counselors and therapists know already, is that when the moments of resonance came from being engaged with other people, whether it was one person or in community, the context of trust was important. And the context of really allowing people to uncover, to be at the different stages almost that they needed to be at as they processed the trauma, but also just to gently come alongside them and develop sort of the context for trusted disclosure. In fact, that's what I called it in the research. Resonance really was embedded and came out of the majority of the time that trusted disclosure 
context that allowed people to move into the place of making sense of the resonance experiences they were having and have insights from that that then unfolded via the themes that I described earlier. So that is really important, and I believe that that is something, again, social work therapists understand. I know that Tanesha and Calhoun has done some work on facilitating for post-traumatic growth from the therapist and psychology perspective. From those of us who sort of border on psychosocial support and social work, I think overall it is a recognition that when you're working with people affected by any trauma, whether it's Ebola or otherwise, to hold this perspective that what is possible in that post-trauma context isn't just psychopathology and PTSD, um, therefore PTSD assessment and, and treatment possibilities, that it is also uh, possible. It is not you know, a requirement that everybody experiences post-traumatic growth. And again, I want to be careful. It is not a perspective you go into you know, with the expectation that everybody you work with, support, be in relationship with, must experience post-traumatic growth. There's also other contextual factors that I talk about in the research, in addition to I've talked about the sociocultural and holistic knowing, the community factors and pre-personal factors, you know, the person pre-trauma and you know, the background and personal personality and all of those characteristics and factors come into play as well. So being careful to sit with people, have a holistic view of what's possible, and just coming alongside them in a way that might open up those resonance moments and might open up insight. So recognition that a full spectrum of experience is possible. And in some ways, for me, I think it requires a fundamental shift to a developmental mindset and not only sort of survival resilience mindset. Again, that perspective is needed and important. It is important to work with people depending on level of trauma and really just support them to get back to normal functioning and, you know, manageability and resilience. And it is, I think, equally important to hold the possibility of development and possible, no matter what their past and their experiences are. And so the knowledge, I think, that stress symptoms and growth can coexist and to look for appropriate contextual approaches to support people in post-trauma context that also doesn't re-traumatize them and at the same time allows them to think through the possibilities of moving forward. I think in that process, those resonance moments are possible. You know, it's possible to sort of support, lead, come alongside people and encourage them to deeply connect to what's important for them. And through that, this post-traumatic growth and transformational experience can unfold. So I think it's a perspective ultimately, again, as I looked at the literature, that taking this perspective, I believe, will significantly increase the effectiveness of psychosocial and counseling, programming, international development, humanitarian initiatives. I think too often those initiatives, well-intentioned, do fail because of a focus sort of on just one end of the spectrum here, and I think end up in a situation where potentially people, you know, will just say what you want to hear, give you the answers on the PTSD scale, sometimes not even understanding the implication of what they're responding to, if it will mean some kind of aid, some kind of help, some kind of immediate sort of survival need that they have in the immediate sort of emergency response context will be met and doesn't lend itself then to the sort of big picture around capacity building and development and psychosocial development and the possibility for people to move forward in a way that holistically supports both themselves and their communities. 
with all of the work you've done, I think so many of us in the U.S. were absolutely glued to social media and our evening news shows and so forth, listening to uh, the horrifying things going on in Africa with Ebola and to some of the people who were U.S. residents who also contracted Ebola. And it seems that we're barely getting beyond that those very traumatic events. I'm wondering, what's next for you? You know, for me, this is not a time to stop. This is not a time to say, you know, the worst is past. As I said earlier, those system impacts, some of them are only just beginning to unfold. This is a time to take that developmental mindset that I just talked about and to take that capacity-building mindset and to think about how do we set up ourselves, again, for myself personally, what can be done in support of so much work going on in Sierra Leone, in Liberia, in Guinea, in other places where there were cases. Nigeria had a few more than the other countries outside of Africa and the cases that made their way here to America. And so I think that this is a time to look at how do we change the narrative? How do we not only change the narrative but go into action to set up systems that will allow for us to build capacity on the ground for our health systems, for um, in the education sector, within communities, nationwide, so that we are not back in this place, so that people are aware of the impacts and the public health impacts of communicable diseases and are willing to go into a prevention mindset. Again, that is a, a developmental frame. How do we, as a global system, look at I know that, again, the international community has been phenomenal and, you know, I've been just inspired by people both locally and internationally that has done work that both responded to the crisis and looked at building people's capacity to be able to set up systems for themselves. And so how do we, from a, as a global system, look at what is needed to right some of the, the inequalities and the sort of social justice and the social change questions that need to be addressed so that we're not back in this place, so that even if there is, you know, another outbreak, that it doesn't result in tens of thousands of people affected and people dying. You know, I always think of this in terms of the body analogy. If the finger is suffering, if you cut your finger, you feel it all over your body. And for me, that's the same thing with this situation. It matters because if one part of our global system is suffering, all of us are. And I know that there's a lot of other sort of global issues and disasters we need to be attentive to. So my call has always been that, you know, whatever issue you're connected to that has global systems impact, don't be silent. So for me, um, ongoing work around the post-traumatic growth research and work that I'm doing, I've connected with a delightful group of women in Sierra Leone just committed to social change and social action. And one of them who has an organization called Excel has just taken 12 students who are from social work programs, the first of its kind for Sierra Leone. And she's working with these students, training them, mentoring them, building the capacity to go out and work from this frame and be mentors and 
support workers in the community to build other people's capacity, working to encourage people to look at, you know, what do we have locally in our hands readily that we can use to be in action and be in response to what is needed now. So coming alongside them and seeing ways that I can support work like that. I'm working with other groups such as the People's Foundation for Sierra Leone that's looking at what can we do from an education sector lens to support people to go back um, to university. And so sort of in, in sort of social change, I'm connected to organizations like that with my research continuing to think about how to spread this work around post-traumatic growth and resonance and working from a holistic developmental lens in post-trauma context and doing a lot also on the question of African leadership globally. Again, this is not just a question of leadership on the continent, but it is a question of leadership for me at every sector, both locally on the continent and for those of us that are outside the continent, and in terms of what can we do to just continue to lead change and not wait for permission, and not just look at leadership again just from the lens of political leadership, which tends to dominate that conversation again. So what are the alternative leadership lenses and ways that we can just all be in action? So I am doing stuff in in sort of all three of those areas and continuing to look for the possibilities everywhere I go. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the wonderful work that you do and for taking time with us today. Dr. Yabom Gilpin Jackson, thank you again. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have been here. You've been listening to Dr. Yabom Gilpin Jackson discuss narratives on Ebola in West Africa on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, Check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.